Welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin, and I'm joined here by Alex. Hey. Hi, Justin. We're also here with our good buddy, Noah. Hey, dude. Hello. So, uh, we have a very special episode today. We are actually going to be doing a 2010s retrospective, uh, looking back on the films of the decade from 2010 to 2019. This was, I'm sure, a very formative year for for all of us, I, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself, because this was really the decade where I felt like I got very serious about film and about the kinds of things that I was watching. But uh, yeah, this, this episode is dedicated to some of our favorite directors of the decade. We'll also be discussing our favorite actors. And we'll be closing out this episode by talking about not necessarily our favorite films, but our favorite underappreciated films of the decade. We will be playing testimonials throughout uh, from ourselves and our contributors for our true favorite films of the decade. So uh, all that in this one show. And with that, let's jump right into it. My favorite film of the decade is Moonlight, uh, Barry Jenkins' Oscar-winning film about a young man in Miami, Florida, who is coming to terms with his sexuality and his upbringing and life. And, you know, Barry Jenkins takes a story that's very easy to make generic and trite, but instead he has such an eye for color and lighting and music and mood and editing and camera work. He really makes this into a very atmospheric, poetic film. And it's a truly, truly wonderful movie. I think it's, you know, the kind of movie that we all say we want more of. You know, movies about people of color, movies about LGBT people, movies that feel very lived in and specific. And to me... Movies like that are the ones that are the most universal. I mean, I'm not that similar to Chiron in the film, but I kind of related to him in, in a lot of ways just because he felt like a real character. And that's, you know, that's how I feel about all the characters. They all feel very uh, specific. But for me, the, yeah, the camera work and the lighting and the music are the really the best parts. Barry Jenkins can really shoot a scene for its maximum effect and really create an ambiance that is truly unique and beautiful. So uh, this is Manish Mathur and yeah, that's my uh, favorite film of the decade. Thanks. Hi, this is Sean from the Blue Panther Milk Co. YouTube channel. My favorite movie of the 2010s, it's gotta be Mad Max Fury Road. It was such a shock and such a surprising movie. And every time I watch it, I find something new to love about it. I've been to see it in the cinema a bunch of times. Uh, I've watched it on a plane, I've watched it on a phone. It's just it's just a perfect movie. So that's my favorite movie. Hey guys, this is Noah. So, thinking back on this decade, my favorite film would have to be the animated film and the last film that Isao Takahata of Studio Ghibli made, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, or The Legend of Princess Kaguya, depending on how you want to translate it. This was quite simply the most personally emotional experience uh, by far that I had in a movie theater um, over the last 10 years. 
The movie itself is a masterpiece on every level. It is gorgeous with a completely unique style. The, the animation style, the music, the way the film is put together gives it a feel of being this this timeless epic tale um, in this world where anything is possible and where magic can happen. So just on that level itself, it's an incredible viewing experience. And for reasons that are beyond my ability to explain, I mean, partly because it's a great film, but for reasons that I also can't really put into words, the experience of watching it in theaters was just profoundly, deeply emotional. My wife and I were in tears at the end of the movie. I was so shaken that I was still tearing up just thinking about the movie for a long time that same day for a half hour an hour after the movie i'd still tear up just thinking about it it's such a beautiful and sweet and funny and deeply thought-provoking movie about how our tragic frailties combined with our endless capacity for love in so many different ways so that is by far my favorite film of the decade well, thank you very much to Manish and Sean, who were so kind as to share with us some thoughts on their personal favorite film of the decade, as well as my favorite film as well. And in this segment, the three of us are going to discuss which director we found to be the best or most interesting or most meaningful of the past decade. So I'll save myself for last. Uh, Alex, would you like to start? Sure. So for me, this was maybe the hardest of all of our categories for this year. I guess I'm a little bit basic when it comes to appreciating movies because I am auteur driven and uh, I feel such a connection to mm. many uh, directors out there. Uh, and I really had to ask myself what really constitutes the director of the decade. Is it they made the most films that I liked? They made the films that I liked the most? Uh, and I ended up settling on Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron made two films this decade. Uh, he made Gravity in 2013, and he made Roma in 2018. Were those really the only two? Those were the only two. Oh, wow. And with those films, I think it's like a really nice kind of uh, bookends to this decade in a lot of ways. Uh, he manages to push the medium of film to places that we've never seen it go before while also telling deeply personal and intimate stories about its characters. And I feel like that combination really speaks to, in a definitive way to what this decade in movies has been like. Uh, he's also a Mexican filmmaker who made uh, a combination of films set in a variety of countries and uh, time periods during his career overall. I mean... Gravity takes place in space, obviously, uh, so that's not specific to any one country. <laughs> uh, and Roma is very, very specifically tied to his own kind of uh, the milieu which he grew up in, uh, in Mexico City. Uh, and I just feel like there's no director that better captures the two things that I like most about films, uh, because those two things often are in... Uh, are often contrasting aspects to film culture more widely. The big blockbuster effects driven, I can't believe they pulled this off and the quiet, like <laughs> uh, intimate moments of human connection. And the fact that he's able to do both and do both at such an expert level uh, makes him my filmmaker of the decade. Uh, it was tough competition. I considered a lot of 
options. Uh, Richard Linklater was a tough, tough uh, runner-up for me. Uh, he's made some incredible films uh, and some really, really good films and just overall a lot of films that I really liked in this decade, including Bernie, Before Midnight, Boyhood, Everybody Wants Some, Last Flag Flying, <laughs> and uh, Where'd You Go Bernadette? Just a really impressive body of work. But ultimately, I had to go with Caron because I just think that he is the best encapsulation of all of the things that I like in movies. And he did that with only two films. And I think that's incredible. Both films in my top 25 of the decade, I should say. Yeah, I, I was, I'm pleasantly surprised to, to, to hear him as your favorite. I, my money probably would have been on Linklater. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I love Coron as well. I feel like, and it's funny because like, even though he only made two films, just the amount of, just hearing about like the amount of preparation just really showed in those movies, like the time and the consideration and the care that went into them was just undeniable. I know he, along with some of his other, his fellow uh, Mexican filmmakers of the, the three amigos, uh, they're much lauded for the, their technical mastery. Um, but there is something to me about Cuaron and the way he marries um, those undeniable technical achievements mm. with real, uh, just visceral emotion. I feel like those to me are so linked in his films like yeah. inextricably from one another. Um, so yeah, he's a really, he's, he's yeah. great. Yes. <laughs> Despite the fact that you really could not pick two movies that on the surface could be more different than gravity and Roma. No, that's right. a good point. Those are incredibly disparate films in terms of tone and style and genre. story and visuals <laughs> genre. Uh, but the fact that he does both so incredibly well is a testament to his abilities as a filmmaker. Yeah, absolutely. And they both feel like Corone films too, which mm -hmm. is considering how different they are, that is really saying something about what he's bringing to those projects. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Alex. We'll turn it over to you, Justin. Okay. Well, I don't feel like this is going to be a shock to anybody considering I've talked about this guy as my favorite living filmmaker. Uh, and he made three movies in this decade, all of which were the num my number one film for uh, their respective years. I'm, of course, talking about oh, Paul what? Thomas Anderson. Ah, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he's someone who, before Inherent Vice came out in 2014, I realized, like, I actually had a lot of blind spots about him. And then in the process of not only watching those films, but actually sort of my first foray into recordings i guess uh these very amateurish uh video logs that i was doing for not just for his features but also for whatever short films of his i could find i just really enjoyed seeing the connections between them i think the three films he made this decade which were the master inherent vice and phantom thread they definitely draw upon themes that he has explored in earlier movies and you know, I could do a whole thing on, honestly, he probably would have been contention if we were just talking about the aughts, but uh, these three films, I think, carry on some of those traditions in terms of surrogate families, but also, I think, very unconventional love stories. Each of them, in their own way, are kind of this weird sort of love story that explore these very broken people who find some level of, if not salvation, then perhaps some level of hope and grace within each other and but at the same time those love stories are very complicated they're messy and deal with very uncomfortable truths about 
well, just people being in contact with one another and all the things that can dredge up. Um, I love Anderson for how versatile he is. He feels to me like someone who can make a film in any genre. And he always seems to be trying something new with each of his films. There's to go from something like Inherent Vice, which is so steeped in the very, very early 70s, like oh, like precipice between like the 69 and 70. Um, that's so steeped in that culture and that time both in the music and the yeah, fashion the, the and the look. Is, the whole movie is its own vibe. And to go from that to something like Phantom Thread, which is, so, again, so... Um, just such a such a uh, piece of its of its time and is so impeccably researched it, it just doesn't matter what he's exploring he's always exploring it to the fullest extent so I love his versatility I love the comedy too I feel like he's very good at establishing what on the page seems like a kind of you know, very almost like staid sort of period piece, like what like another director would do, and just really injecting it with these incredibly funny moments. That's something that I think the master has some great moments of comedy. There's a, I mean, the, some of the scenes with Joaquin Phoenix where he's going through the the processing, I just think are are great. Where he's ranting and 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 raving, uh, and then just Phantom Thread, just some of the lines in that film. I would also vote for any scene between Walking Phoenix and Josh Brolin in Inherent Vice. Oh, well, yes, I, I do love those. I just love the dynamic between those two. Yeah, he's just he just seems like someone who has boundless curiosity about the world. And he just for me, he's just bringing it every time. He's just he's and he makes films that to me just always like I've seen each of those films at least twice i think i've seen phantom thread three times and every time i see one of those films it always gets better um so it's just yeah i don't know he's just someone who speaks to me at a very <laughs> very primal level um so yeah he's definitely my favorite of the decade yeah i have to say the master is a movie that i really i really liked when i first saw it but i didn't love it and having not seen it since the first time i saw it i find myself thinking about it all the time <laughs> and i think that's just a striking <laughs> testament to the film and yeah. i think i need to like rewatch it at some point and just reevaluate my opinion because a movie that stays with you that long and has that large of an impact is is mm. that's that's tough to find so yeah all right so um i'm up then uh, like like you guys this is a hard one uh there were I think there it's hard to there's so many different ways that you could qualify like what makes someone the the director of the decade or even like how I could justify picking a favorite like is it the most movies most movies that I like most impactful um most you know awards winning or most influential in the end I settled on someone who directed three movies over the course of this decade, uh, only one of which is going to make my my best of the decade list. I wanted to pick someone who I felt uh, their films encapsulated some important aspect of the decade, but also people who were where I saw them as more of the future of filmmaking. Hmm. Um, so like one of my background considerations was Martin Scorsese. Uh, because this decade included him making Silence, the Irishman, and Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, and Silence and Wolf of Wall Street had particularly big impacts on me. And I find that Wolf of Wall Street um, speaks to our current political and economic climate very well. But, you know, that that's an older filmmaker who's sort of, he's not in his prime anymore. He doesn't, he's not a trendsetter the way he used to be. So I settled on a director who well, I, whose career started this decade and is one of the directors who I would like to see be a big 
name and a big influence and a big trendsetter going forward uh, as sort of a, a new generation of filmmaking talent. So my pick for director of the decade is Ryan Coogler. Ooh. Mm. So Ryan Coogler, his first ever film that he wrote and directed was Fruitvale Station, which mm. came out in 2013. Then two years later, he wrote and directed Creed, uh, which was sort of this re and like this recreation and reimagining of the Rocky franchise, <laughs> a franchise that pretty much everyone had assumed was good and dead. Uh, but he took it in directions that everyone really responded to. And then his last film, he, he did not direct the, the Creed 2 sequel, but he did uh, produce it. And then his last film of the decade was, of course, Black Panther. I, again, a, a sort of like a lot of the other directors we've talked about, these are very different movies in a lot of ways. But they all have, I find they have a lot of common threads in terms of how they reflect on people. I mean, specifically... Um, people who are um, African-American or African, I guess, in the, in the case of Wakanda, trying to navigate complicated worlds and trying to find ways to be, to do good of some sort within the worlds in their limited or sometimes not as limited abilities. I mean, I, I see him as, as one of the like great filmmakers going forward. I also think uh, that his movies are important in the fact that uh, all three movies have been big in establishing Michael B. Jordan as a, a movie star for many years to come. Uh, and Michael B. Jordan is one of the actors who I would like to see uh, continue to be a, a bigger and bigger figure within the industry going forward. And on top of that, Black Panther is uh, easily my favorite of the three. And Black Panther will be... Uh, I, I don't know yet if it'll make my top 10, if it'll crack the top 10 of my favorites of the decades, but it will definitely crack the top 15. Because as many people have pointed out, this was the decade where... Uh, comic book properties and superhero movies and, you know, costume, uh, hero movies really solidified as like the, one of the central parts of the filmmaking industry, both for good and for bad. So there's no talking about the 2010s without talking about superhero movies, especially the Marvel movies, because they were by pretty much any stretch of the, by, by any metric you could pick. They were the most successful. And in my opinion, the, the vast majority of the Marvel movies have been fine, but ultimately kind of disposable. Like almost none of them I would sit down and watch again. Uh, but Black Panther is like one of the handful of films that were the exception to that, where I truly loved and responded to this film in a way that I haven't to that I've not responded to any of the other superhero properties that came out this decade. You know, it has this, it, it has all of these standard narrative structural elements of, you know, an origin story of a hero coming into his own and having to accept some greater responsibility connected to his powers. So on, on a purely narrative level, uh, this doesn't like break new ground. It's telling a very classic hero story. Like with all of the really great memorable hero stories, it brings its own feel, its own, it has its own unique look, its own unique style. Uh, the actors imbue their characters with a real humanity to them that, you know, let lesser superhero and effects driven movies just focus on the spectacle and they neglect that human element um, to make you really care and understand why these stories can be about all these fantastical elements like a suit made out of a miracle metal, but can still be powerfully emotionally relevant to us in the quote unquote real world. Um, and for me, there was no movie within the superhero genre that that fulfilled that quite like Black Panther did. Yeah, I think that he's a great pick. If I was going to 
uh, break down this like best director of the decade into categories uh, and give out like a best like blockbuster director or a best like mainstream commercial director, it would 100% be Ryan Coogler because mm. he's bringing mm. things to that to that corner of the film industry that no one else is. And I'm very excited to see what he does next. Yeah. Well, thank you to both of you. So there you have it, guys. Those are our main picks. And then I think we had a few honorable mentions in there as well of the directors that we felt um, were defined the 2010s in very special ways. So coming up next are a few more clips from friends of ours on some of their favorite films of the 2010s. Hey, this is Chris, Justin's brother. And one of my favorite films of the last decade is Pixar's Inside Out. What I really love about this film is that it's very creative in how it represents different aspects of the human mind. It's animated beautifully and the characters that represent each emotion are just cast really well. This film really resonates with me because it shares the message that it's okay to express your sad or angry emotions because they can lead to positive moments in your life. Oftentimes we're told to be happy and put on a brave face, but it's important to express your true emotions to allow for comfort and the ability to bond with friends, family, and loved ones. Pixar's ability to convey this message and make it relatable to both kids and adults is what makes this one of my favorite movies of the past decade. Uh, my name is Aaron Harmody. Uh, Ex Machina is my favorite film of the past decade. Alex Garland's film asks a very interesting series of questions, most interesting of which is, what would we do? if we were actually confronted by the Nietzschean idea of a Superman, the person who is so much better than the rest of humanity by virtue of the fact that they are not constrained by notions of morality. And what makes this especially interesting, what makes this really resonant for me, is within the text and subtext of the film, it provides a very uh, nuanced critique of the idea of, of Superman in general. And given how we have a tendency to worship the people who are quote-unquote better than us in our society, I thought it was a very powerful statement of both the benefits and the flaws inherent with not really caring about other people. This film has really done more than any other sci-fi film to elevate the genre since 2001 A Space Odyssey, and that's why it's my favorite of the past decade. Hi everyone, Justin here with my favorite film of the 2010s, and that is The Tree of Life, the 2011 film from Terrence Malick. Going into this film, I was not quite sure what to expect, saw it, and it kind of just knocked my socks off. It takes nothing short of the creation and progression of the universe from the Big Bang through dinosaurs to this incredibly specific childhood set in 1950s suburban Texas. Uh, this is intended to be semi-autobiographical, but it's so impressionistic and imagistic that it feels so much bigger than that. I felt like Malik hadn't so much captured my childhood as he had captured 
the essence of it. There were moments in this film that I felt like I hadn't tapped into since I had been that young. And really to take the approach that he does here, the, the ambition of it, sure, but just how he's able to relate something so massive as the universe and the way that we see our very specific individual lives as these huge world as some, something as big as, as the universe is really true to how we tend to experience things. And while I think the film has gotten knocked for being pretentious by some circles, I think what keeps it from being that is that this film is not any kind of definitive profundity about the human condition. What it is, is more of amusing. And I think you can really hear that in the voiceover here, which is contradicting itself almost more like wisps of thought than it is any kind of definitive assessment of what we're seeing. And to me, that's just so true about the way that our thoughts change, the way that our personalities change, the way that we change through time and space, sometimes without even realizing it. And I think when we look back, this is not dissimilar. We, we tend to look at the things that we think, where did things go wrong? When did we lose our innocence? When did life become what it is now? And really what I think this film shows is that lives are in constant flux and to really embrace that, which is not any kind of neat or tidy resolution, but the film is very much, uh, I think, very focused on avoiding those kinds of resolutions and really about embracing that chaos and, and that constant flux. And for me, that's why it's so important just on a personal level. Well, I want to thank uh, my friend Aaron and my brother Chris for those uh, clips sharing their favorite films of the decade. Uh, we're going to transition right now into our favorite uh, performers of the decade. And I'm really curious about this because there's just so many to pick from. I'm going to take a page from Noah and go last for this. So I'm actually going to toss it to you, Noah, for your favorite performer of the decade. Ooh, wow. Okay. Well, this was, in a way, I think this was harder for me than picking underappreciated film or best director, which are our other two segments. Because there's so many actors that I really like uh, in the business today. With this topic, uh, again, I decided to go with who are people that I think are are some of my favorite people working in the business today and people who I feel really came into their own this decade hmm. um, and have the potential to be, you know, big name stars going forward. So, you know, I I did not think in terms of, you know, older established stars like Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. So my main pick ultimately ended up being Oscar Isaac. Ooh. I gave very heavy consideration to Michael B. Jordan and Saoirse Ronan. Mm, I would have guessed that last one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So th those are like my, my B and C picks. I ultimately settled on Oscar Isaac because I feel like he's been, he's established himself a little bit more firmly as a, a major film star. And I think he has... Mostly part thanks to the Star Wars movies. I think he re he very much is a household name now, which in my opinion, he should have been a household name from day one. Uh, and he is, I, I think we all agree, he is among the best things uh, in the, the new Star Wars trilogy that came out. So just going through a list of the films that he came out, I actually had completely forgotten he had a tiny role in Drive back in 2011. Oh, the first place I remember seeing him. Yeah, I had I had completely forgotten that he was in this movie until I went back through his filmography. Uh, but where he really broke through for me was uh, Inside Lewin Davis, mm. 
uh, the Coen Brothers movie from 2013 that is going to sail into it's going to end up somewhere in my top 10 spot of favorite films for the decade uh, but that was i mean a i thought it was the best film that the coen brothers have made in years i think it's one of it's one of their all-time greats uh like i said it's one of my favorite of the decade and a lot of that hinges on his performance as lewin davis uh, just this amazing performance and the balance he manages to strike between playing someone who is obviously like who's clearly a talented musician but is also an egotistical asshole who can't help trip over his own feet and just keep keeps kneecapping himself unnecessarily but he never goes full on into in making him so despicable that you still can't have some level of understanding or, or sympathy from where he's coming from within limits obviously <laughs> uh but that that was a performance that as soon as I walked out of the movie, I was like, I got to keep an eye on this guy because he's going to be doing some amazing stuff. And he has. In addition to doing that movie, uh, of course, he had the three Star Wars movies and his performance in all three of those movies is among is some of the best stuff in all three of them, uh, even the the much maligned last one. And then on top of that, he also had two uh, vastly different roles but just as effective and important in two of my favorite sci-fi movies of the decade, Ex Machina in 2015 and then Annihilation in 2018. He has a, his role in 2018 is smaller, but it's still very crucial to the, to the development of that plot. All of those movies combined just demonstrate an incredible range uh, of abilities that this guy has. Plus, he is charismatic as hell. Like, he just waltzes <laughs> on the screen like... <laughs> The whole like just like the whole tone changes as soon as he's on screen. Like I can already tell, this is going to be one of those guys who, anytime his name pops up in a, a major role in any film, that alone is going to get my is going to get my ears to perk up. Yeah, he's one of those performers for me. Like I just I remember like seeing I do remember seeing him in Drive and being like, oh, like just like how he was able to make such a complete character out of that guy was just so impressive to me. And then when I saw he was going to be leading the next Coen Brothers movie, it was the greatest thing for me. The only thing that was greater was actually seeing him doing it and killing it. But yeah, um, yeah he's he's really he one of the things I really love about him is he's really great at subtle facial expressions. You know, you mentioned Star Wars that one moment, even though, you know, we've talked about the Rise of Skywalker and this podcast but the one moment that one just like that one look he gives carrie russell toward the end um you know i think maybe like for a moment you know got me out of the torpor i'd been in up to that point so uh i gotta give him credit for that <laughs> um yeah so uh yeah he's he's uh pretty wonderful i'm curious uh really quick have you seen a most violent year. I wanted to see it, but I, I ended up missing it while it was out, and I have not been able to okay. circle, around, circle around to it yet. Gotcha. Um, I also really wanted. I mean, I've heard it's not as good, but at some point, I do want to see Operation uh, Finale. It is. Uh, it's not as good as the most violent year. If you're if you're a fan <laughs> of Oscar Isaac, <laughs> you have to see a most violent year because <laughs> he gives an incredible yeah, performance in it. And Jessica Chastain is also incredible in that movie. Also, I did not realize, uh, according to Wikipedia. He was also in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse as interesting person number one. He played uh, the he was in the tease, the teaser at the very end where he played um, Miguel O'Hara, who is the Spider-Man of the future, Spider-Man 2099 oh. in the very end. <laughs> yeah. So he's they teased him up to be a 
to be in the in the sequel, but we don't know for sure if that'll happen. I can't. I already can't wait. All right, uh, let's go to you, Alex, for your favorite actor of the decade. Okay, so this was very difficult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sensing a theme, <laughs> I have to out of the way first. I want to p- give a shout out to two honorable mentions who were just like very very close runners up for me. Uh, these are actors who I really really love. I who were uh, indelible parts of this decade for me uh but whose contribution to films i think were just limited in the fact that their performances were really incredible but oftentimes they weren't in my very very favorite film of the year and that is what separates them from what the actual performer that i chose is um they are uh lupita nyong'o who burst out onto the scene in 2013's uh, 12 Years a Slave gave an incredible performance and then sold her soul to Disney for the next <laughs> like six <laughs> years <laughs> uh, where she was in Queen of Cotway and Jungle Book and all three new Star Wars movies and also Black Panther uh, and then she just dazzled us this year with us uh, so that is her her contribution is extremely vast uh, in a lot of different kind of like very zeitgeisty movies that uh, really made an impact. Um, and then also Timothy Chalamet, who you guys know is my fave. <laughs> and he is a guy, he like was so close, but I just feel like he hasn't given us his best yet. I feel like he's like more of a performer on the rise than he is like the definitive performer of a decade. And I think he just got started a little bit too late to really be like the actor of the decade for me. Hmm. But his performances in movies like Miss Stevens and Lady Bird and Beautiful Boy and Little Women and of course his best performance in Call Me by Your Name. Uh, notice I didn't mention the King. Uh, <laughs> he it was he's just incredible. He's an incredible performer. He's electric, and I'm very very excited to see what he does in the next decade. So potential King of the 2020s. <laughs> yes, but my my performer for this decade is Charlize Theron. She is an actress with such an insane range that is really like unmatched in film right now she can be an incredible like brooding uh movie star in an action film like mad max fury road one of the best films of the decade where she just tears your heart out like literally and then emotionally (laughs) in that movie And then she can also be like a crazy cool badass action hero in a movie like Atomic Blonde. Mm. And then she could give just an incredibly devastating portrait of a narcissist that is impossible to turn your turn away from in a movie like Young Adult. And then she can play a character who is just painfully relatable in a movie like Tully. And then she could just kind of be the best part of a bad movie like Prometheus. Or she could give, or another example of that is Snow White and the Huntsman, where she just like <laughs> is so over the top and campy and exactly the way that the movie needs her to be. And then she could even be the villain in a Fast and the Furious movie. I mean, like, who has that much range? Like, it's incredible. I'd forgotten about that. And also, that doesn't even get to her ability to just like land amazing, funny movies as well when she gives herself the opportunity to do so i mean she's in a rom-com this year called long shot where she's just consistently really really funny and she completely overshadows like all of the other actual comedians on screen 
and I and I can't wait to see her do more comedy in the future because I think she's really great. I mean, you only have to go back to her role in Arrested Development many years ago <laughs> to see how funny she can be. Yep. <laughs> but she just and and I mean, she even did a a voice performance in Kubo and the Two Strings, which is a very notable animated film. So I just I just don't think that there's anybody else out there who has this much range and this much ability. And also, she happened to be in three of my favorite films of the decade, which is uh, not something that many other people were able to do. And what's interesting about that is that they are all three very different performances mm. uh, that spoke to me in very different ways, uh, but we were all excellent. And those were Mad Max Fury Road, Young Adult, and Tully. So for that, undeniably, my favorite performer of the decade, Charlize Theron. Very good, very good. So that's a great choice. I am really glad that <laughs> I had her as a runner up because she was like she was in strong consideration for me for performing the decade, but I'm glad I went with someone else <laughs> just so we didn't overlap. Um but yeah, I I echo a lot of things you said. I I really feel like like I totally agree with you about her range and I really feel like she's underrated in terms of that. She has such a movie star elegance to her that I think we like tend to forget that she can do all these other things, you know? Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So Theron for me was one of my honorable mentions. Uh, my other honorable mention uh, is someone who is probably one of my favorite actors, but I realized I wanted to go with someone who to me had like really been a, like had really like burst onto the scene this decade and who I had kind of tracked throughout the decade. Like Shannon is someone I discovered a little bit earlier, uh, Michael Shannon, who I thought did really great work in, in a lot of movies and really great in like bit parts. Um, even something like loving, I think he's really wonderful. Like he really creates this whole character in like the span of five minutes or so, uh, who's really quirky <laughs> and, and, and interesting. And, um, and he's, he's like, he's really good at listening to other uh, performers. I feel like that's a real skill anyway, but he is not my pick. Uh, my pick is going to be Jessica Chastain, who Ooh. I really discovered, I'm sure with a lot, along with a lot of other people, um, this decade, uh, starting with the tree of life in 2011. And I just think has been really consistent in the kinds of work that she's done. I do. I know that she does have a few credits before uh, before the 2010s, but nothing that really like made her a name uh, until 2011, where she was in like uh, three three movies that year that uh, where she garnered uh, acclaim. Uh, probably Tree of Life and uh, The Help especially, but I would also say Take Shelter, which might be my favorite performance of hers. It's definitely up there. Wasn't she in like five movies in 2011? Let me see. So she was also in Coriolanus, which I feel like I think, Noah, you've seen. Oh, yeah, that is that's an underappreciated gem right there. She, oh my gosh, one, two, three, four, five. She was in six movies in 2011. Yeah, that was really her breakout year. <laughs> um, uh, with some films that I, I haven't seen, so I can't attest to their quality. But I feel like she's someone who could have this like almost angelic, very graceful quality. But she's really good in a lot of these films that just building up this kind of intensity that's incredibly subtle. But when she gets to those moments of high energy and intensity, it just feels like it's been building that whole time. I think of something like Crimson Peak, where she is just like, it's like she's very subtle up to this point where all of a sudden she goes like into 
I don't know, like Judith Anderson and Rebecca territory, just in terms of the levels <laughs> of mania. <laughs> I just uh, I love her in that movie. Yeah, it's so underrated. I was so I know it was like one of those things where I was like, she is not getting enough credit for this film, and and yet she's like really heartbreaking in that film too. Like she's just she's so good at playing so many different emotions at the same time. I think a film that unfortunately has not gotten a lot of buzz, but I know that Alex, you are a fan of at least one of the versions of it. Uh, the version that focuses on her, which is the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. Um, there are two yes. versions of this. There's him and her. Um, and there's actually three versions of it because then they also sure. did a cut where they sure. combined the two. Yes. Which was a bad idea. Yeah. I think, wasn't that done af- like afterward when they were trying it was, to release yeah, it like, theatrically? Yeah, the, the producers forced them to do it so that way they could release it like in theaters. Yeah, she that that movie too. I think where she's just fantastic at playing like I don't like I want to say a regular person, like just someone who is so um, who's just like trying to find what she wants to do in her life, and it following this incredibly traumatic event. There's this there's moments of stillness that she has in that movie that I just kind of take my breath away. I love her interactions with Viola Davis in that film. I think just think they have such great chemistry together. I also would be pretty neglectful if I failed to mention her role in Zero Dark Thirty, which I think is just fantastic mm. considering the kind of role she's playing and the kind of person that Maya, the character she's playing is. I just think there's a really interesting yeah. tension there and and the way she plays off of all these big shots, all these government big shots from Kyle Chandler to James Gandolfini. I just think she's so she's just so good at being able to command your attention with the subtlest of acting. I mean, it's just she's just wonderful. So she is my pick for performer of the decade. Okay, well, with that, we're going to hear some more testimonials of people's favorite films of the decade. At risk of recency bias, my film of the decade would have to be Parasite. First of all, the movie is just really fun and a total thrill ride. It switches genres up on you, and at once you think it's a comedy and then it becomes a thriller, and then a drama, and a meditation on class and the state of our society. I think it resonates in these multitudes that make the movie really profound because it hits at all cylinders. It makes you laugh, it makes you cry, it makes you ponder the nature of society, and I just thought it was done masterfully. From a cinematic perspective, the movie's ability to switch these perspectives and moods and genres was absolutely incredible. Like one moment you're literally watching a comedy and then it turns into a step back around like a meditation on the nature of life and society and then all of a sudden it's a thriller. Literally, the movie uncovers new realms of itself, just like what we uncover new realms of the house that is the central home of the movie. Secondly, the movie reflects, uh, interestingly at the least in the United States, although I can't comment on South Korea where the movie takes place, really resonant social issues that we're experiencing these days. We have the highest level of inequality uh, since uh, before the Great Depression, and people are considering us as being in the new Gilded Age. And this movie really brings that feeling home. The patriarch of the rich family, he's a tech guy and represents sort of the, the new economic elite of this millennium. And in turn, the poor family, the Kim family, despite having 
a significant degree of entrepreneurial spirit and talent independent of all of that, you know, laying waste to the silly narratives of pull your bootstraps up and you'll succeed are trapped in their situation, literally getting urinated on. So I thought the movie just really profoundly portrayed this dynamic without centering it around like sort of guilt or any preachiness, just centering it around these believable, albeit lively characters' narratives. And I just thought that was really interesting. After spending a good amount of time thinking about which movie I would pick as my favorite for the entire decade, I don't want to disappoint anybody, but it, it starts in 2010, right? The beginning of the decade. So it really started things off with a huge bit of optimism for me and what I hope for for movies for the decade. And that movie would be Inception. Now, I know it might not be the most interesting pick, and that's why I kind of struggled to say it and why I went back and forth for such a long time, but like I said, I kept coming back to it because it really set things up in a way for the decade that I just couldn't ignore. I remember when Inception came out, I, I remember seeing the trailer and going, well, what the hell is this? Like, this looks like something I haven't really seen before. And I ended up seeing the movie three times in theaters, which is basically unheard of for me. And each time I really wasn't disappointed. I learned more from it. I, I really grew from it. I, I really, really enjoyed the experience. You know, it, it was just mind-blowing to me to see a movie that was so mainstream, so successful, so loved, you know, and hated too, with some of that mainstream success, but just so talked about being this like weird action-y big budget Leonardo DiCaprio film that also was dealing with some really interesting topics you know really going into dreams and identity and time and meaning and I had just never seen anything like it and I got really excited by it because I thought wow if this is the successful movie of 2010 to start this decade, what else do we have to look forward to? And, you know, the good news is that there were a lot of great movies over the decade that really stood out to me for sure. Don't know that big budget action movies really followed in the Inception direction, but, you know, from what I've heard, even with kind of the whole Marvel Avenger series, which I, I don't know, but what I heard that they do kind of tackle things in a new, interesting way, and there is more emotion and story and character depth and all those things I feel like are not exactly unrelated to the success of Inception. It's a movie I'll never forget. It really, really, really hits on everything. I mean, it has something in there for everybody. It has all the weird dream stuff for people like me, but combined with some of these cool action sequences and fights and crazy stuff filled with this existential drama. So that's my pick. This is Alex, and I want to say that my favorite movie of the decade is David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin's collaboration, The Social Network, from 2010. I know picking a 2010 release might seem a little bit lame. There was, of course, nine other years that I could have chosen, but it really never got better than that first year of the decade for me and this collaboration between Aaron Sorkin, who is one of my all-time favorite screenwriters, and David Fincher, who is an incredibly talented director. I've spoken on this podcast at other points about my love for this movie, so I'll keep it brief and only say that this incredible cast, led by Jesse Eisenberg, but populated with some of the biggest stars of the ensuing decade, including Arnie Hammer and Rooney Mara and Andrew Garfield, it really captures something exciting and new about this decade. It, it tells a story that is fundamentally a millennial story, uh, which 
felt really important in 2010 and feels even more resonant now as the millennials kind of come of age and start to take over culture in a more meaningful way. And it's about Mark Zuckerberg, who, of course, at the time of the movie's release, was thought of as like, why does the guy who made Facebook need a movie about him? And now he is one of the most important people in the world, arguably, and uh, has done quite a lot since this movie came out uh, to kind of affect his legacy. But ultimately, this is a story about ambition and about trying to fill that hole in yourself that is so deeply informed by loneliness and alienation and the ways in which that quest ended up in the case of our main character, played by Jesse Eisenberg, pushing everyone away when all we really want is to be connected. And certainly that is a resonant theme for this era. Uh, watching it again, I was struck by how much this movie is about toxic masculinity in a variety of ways. And that certainly was a th transcendent theme of this decade. But mostly I just love the way this movie looks, the way this movie sounds, the way this movie feels, and it's just so incredibly funny and heartbreaking and rewatchable, and it's just my favorite film. All right, well, thank you to Dimitri and Jeremy for contributing their favorite films of the decade. Now we are here at the end of our episode. We have discussed many uh, directors and actors and actresses and so many films, so many great films of this decade. And I wanted to take a little minute to discuss some films that uh, maybe don't rise to the level of greatest of the decade, but still hold a special place in our heart. Because I feel like in these what is the absolute best conversations, we sometimes lose track of the things that really spoke to us, maybe even in a, in a smaller way, maybe in a less perfect way, but still mattered to us over the last 10 years. So with that, I'd like to hear from Noah. What is an underappreciated movie from the decade well, for you? Well, you guys actually gave me an idea uh, when we were talking about Jessica Chastain. Um, I had one film that I was considering talking about this, but then uh, the more I thought about it, the more I think that a, a perfect pick uh, of mine for an underappreciated film would be... Um, Crimson Peak. Oh, okay. Yeah, this was, you know, Guillermo del Toro had been one of those. He's one of the three amigos. He, he certainly had his fans and his following and, and his regard within the industry for a while. Uh, and he, but he did not have like real awards success and recognition until The Shape of Water up a, a couple of years ago, which was fine. Like, I like The Shape of Water a lot, but if I had picked a film of his from the 2010s that should have gotten him, you know, a lot of more recognition, it, it would have been Crimson Peak. And this is this is one of those movies that is not going to be on my favorite of the decades list, but is out, out beyond that list, is one of the films that I'm most interested in eventually revisiting, uh, just to appreciate how amazingly well the whole film was crafted. It's it does such a good job of being so many different things at once. It feels at times like a horror movie, but it's not really a horror movie. Like it's got horror elements. It's got ghost story elements. It has like psycho thriller elements, um, especially where Jessica Chastain is concerned. It's something of a mystery film in a lot of ways regarding like how this bizarre family in this very strange house operates. I think the house itself is also one of the like most interesting sets created for a movie that I've seen that I that I've seen over the course of the decade. 
uh, just this big sprawling mansion that has so many like corners to it, but then it's so run down that you have whole parts of it where like it's open to the outdoors and you'll have like rain <laughs> or snow falling into the house from outside. Um, and it just, it, it creates this really unique atmosphere. So this is like a lot of people, there are plenty of people who, who heralded it when it came out, but I think a lot of people are still sleeping on it. Um, and I definitely think it's a film everyone should see at least once. Yeah, that's a movie that I really liked when I saw it. And I thought that, you know, the the studio tried to sell it as a horror film and a gothic horror film is not the same thing as a horror film. And a lot of people went in and being like, this wasn't scary. Yeah, like it- Bad movie. <laughs> it achieves everything that it's trying to do. And what it's trying to do is interesting and different and at a scale and at a budget that you don't usually get to see. And Everybody is so game for what they're trying to do, and it's just really fun. And uh, and yeah, I feel like too yeah. many people slept on it because they heard it wasn't scary. No, I think people are still sleeping on it. People don't really talk yeah. about it that much anymore. No, well, and especially now that A Shape of Water came and just kind of, you know. And I definitely think it's more interesting than The Shape of Water. <laughs> <laughs> like, The Shape of Water was good, but... <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I think that it's a better movie. Um, but I mean, the fact that that film did not get nominated for de- for production design is such a travesty to me. <laughs> for the room of doll heads alone. Well, let's not get started on Oscar travesties again. <laughs> All right. Well, Justin, how about you? What is uh, <laughs> what is an underappreciated film for you from this decade? Yeah. Um. So I went with something that yeah was sort of outside my top ten, assuming I had one. Uh, but it was one that just. Every time I think about it, I just get like a little thrill inside. <laughs> and it's one that I feel like not many people know of. I feel like I don't think either of you have seen it, but you may have heard of it. I'm going with Cemetery of Splendor. Oh, yeah. I've only heard of it because it was highly rated in your top t- film list of yeah. that year. <laughs> um, yeah, I I just was knocked out by this film when it when I saw it. I, I, I saw it. Uh, it was actually on Netflix, which was really... That, like I was like, oh, it's so cool! I can watch a film like this conveniently, <laughs> and was almost like this out of body experience. Uh, it, it is a, uh, it's a uh, Thai film. It takes place in Konkan. The title in Thai actually translates to "Love in Konkan," which is where the director, whose name I looked up and uh, heard him pronounce himself, so I'm going to give it a shot because I want to do him justice. Apichat Pong Wirat Setikun, who is probably best known for Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, which won the Palme d'Or, I believe, in 2010. I'm actually not super familiar with that film. If I had seen it, maybe that would be my, <laughs> maybe that would be the film I'd be talking about. But this film is so meditative and reflective that it kind of lulls you into this really sort of strange and mysterious mood. It just, it's almost like magical realism where it's not even those those moments of magic are very subtle or it's not even quite clear if they're actually taking place. Mm-hmm. The premise of this film is fairly like there's not much of a plot here. Uh, there's a premise, which is that this woman, uh, Gendra, who is played by Gendra Pongpas, is uh, a volunteer nurse. She is trying to care for these soldiers who are suffering from a kind of sleeping sickness where all of a sudden it's almost like a form of narcolepsy where they'll just kind of like fall asleep. And when they wake up, they claim to be people other than they are. Um, In some cases, they appear to be uh, past loved ones. So there's one character who appears to be at least using this soldier's body as a vessel through which uh, Gendra's 
dead husband is speaking. There's one moment with uh, another character, uh, a woman who claims to be a medium, who is channeling these spirits. You're never quite certain if what is happening is actually what's happening, or if it's this kind of imagined world, if if there's something else going on. There's some social commentary in here about uh, Thailand, and specifically its military dictatorships, which have been quite volatile in that country, with these soldiers kind of tapping into the past. And I think what the film is sort of going for is this this link between the past and present and the way that the present can be informed by the past in ways we don't even really fathom. And this is sort of our window into that. It's just, it lulls you into this mood. It's, it's like, I think I described it in my review as a, a half-remembered dream is sort of the impression that you get. And that's kind of how I recall it. It just taps into something very elemental. It's the kind of thing you can have on in the background and you still feel like you're getting something out of it. It's got this just a vibe to it that is really unlike any other film I've seen this decade. And I think really it's tapping into this place that I honestly, as a, you know, as a, an American, uh, really don't have any idea about. I mean, there's not a lot about Thailand in the news. I feel like I... If I didn't necessarily learn uh, a lot of facts about Thailand, I felt like I learned more about the mood, at least of this one filmmaker and his opinion on what was going on in Thailand, which I thought was really eye-opening. So this is a really, it, this is a really magical kind of film experience. I'm so glad I saw it. I feel like no one really talked about it except for like a few critics who had it. Like everyone I know who has seen it is like ecstatic about it. Um, I'm pretty sure I heard about it first from Josh Larson from Film Spotting, who I believe had it on his top 10 as well. Um, so this is one I would highly recommend. I feel like it's it's just unlike many other kinds of supernatural films that I've seen and that it's not quite clear what's happening. <laughs> and uh, that's a unique experience for sure. Yeah, that's great. I think one day I'm just going to have to just like devote a weekend to seeing all of his films because they're all so acclaimed and sound so interesting. And I just haven't gotten the chance to check it out. I know I have a friend who loves to visit Thailand. He's been on vacation there many, many times and he just loves that country and loves that corner of the world and he's a big fan of this filmmaker as well so i think that you're correct that it kind of speaks to an interesting aspect of that corner of the world and is also just a great work in its own right that for i'm sure. excited to check out as for me i had justin knows this i had a little bit of a hard time i guess i've said this for every category i've had a hard time <laughs> narrowing down this list most of all because there's just so many great small movies that just didn't rise to the level of inclusion in my top 25 list of the decade, which you can find on Letterboxd under Media Thinkings. But I just, I ended up settling on a film that it means a lot to me. It really captures something about movies that I think is what draws me to the medium, which is this like intimate human connection and these like small stolen moments of just understanding and then of reality setting in and disrupting that. It's also a film that is made by an exciting young talent whose work really, uh, it didn't define the decade, but it really was exciting to follow throughout. Uh, I'm talking about Xavier Dolan here. He is, uh, you know, a French, uh, Canadian filmmaker. Unfortunately, his first English language film did not go particularly well, uh, last year, but, he often 
his films are not often great. He has two films that are truly great, one from last decade and one from this one. Uh, I Killed My Mother, and this film that I'm talking about called Mommy. And his films that don't quite rise to that level are still so interesting, and they still capture this overwhelming emotionality that it is to be a person living in the world. <laughs> and that's what I love most about his filmmaking, and that's never stronger than in this film, Mommy, which, as I said, it's written and directed by Xavier Dolan. Uh, it is a French-language film. It stars Anne Dorvel, uh, Suzanne Clement, and Antoine Olivier Pilon, who is kind of the central character in this. The three of them really work well together. Uh, he plays this kind of out-of-control teenage boy who whose uh, mother just can't make sense of and can't really get to like live in the real world he clearly has he's emotionally disturbed in a lot of ways he has moments of violence but moments of passion that is evocative and just so char uh, charismatic and his mother has a host of her own uh difficulties <laughs> to say the least <laughs> yeah. uh and they come into contact with this woman who just is so interesting he she's so loving and caring and compassionate and at the same time so like suppresses something that is so like her own needs and her own yearning in a way that it like it scares her to realize how much she's suppressing and i just think that it's like a beautiful love story in a way that is unexpected and it's shot in a way that is just so bold and daring for a film of this size and stature uh there's the the the, an infamous scene uh, involving the aspect ratio, which is kind of like what anybody who saw this movie talked about at the time. But uh, and that is really great. But this movie is so much more than that, and uh, it's a movie that I think everyone should really try to seek out because when you watch it, you'll get why Xavier Dolan is such an exciting young talent. And uh, I think that if you're anything like me, you'll be moved. I think that I know Justin saw this movie. Yes. Uh, no, have you seen it? I have not. Not yet. Okay. I love this film, and I look forward to seeing it again when I go through Delon's filmography, because I really want to revisit it. Yeah, I was just, I was blown away by the actor, the, especially by, by, I mean, by the acting, but also the filmmaking really complements it. There's a, uh, I don't want to say too much, but there's a montage in the film, which just gets better every time I think about it. It's incredibly moving particularly because of the context in which it's laid. And it's heartbreaking in the most intellectually and emotionally satisfying way possible. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And it was made by a 23-year-old, which is just yeah. <laughs> incredible. I try not to think about that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's just like, he's like Xavier Dolan. He's this, he's a French-Canadian gay filmmaker who made his first film when he was 18 and it got into Cannes, which is just <laughs> insane. And he's really, you know, that's a lot of pressure to put on a young, a, a young creator like that to have that kind of insane debut and then have those expectations. And I think this film, Mommy, is the one that proved that those expectations were valid and that he wasn't just going to be a fluke like that. There was then he had things to say and that he had a way in which he wanted to say them that was interesting and dynamic and unique and that he was going to be here for a long time. And uh, that I can't think of a better reason to include him and this film on this list. Nice. Yeah. 
So uh, with that, I want to thank everybody who contributed to this episode. We were so thankful to have our returning guests come back and and speak to what their favorite films of the decade were to give a more robust sense of this era, which was really interesting and compelling. And there were so many highs and so many lows. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I'm glad that we were able to focus on a lot of the highs today. And uh, thank you guys for being on this show, for making it happen every week. It means the world to me that we get to do this. Uh, and I love getting to talk about movies with you. I love Aww. that people get to hear it, which is so <laughs> nice that people care. For everyone at Cinema Joe's, uh, you know where you can find us and all that. You can listen to other our other episodes. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram and everything else. Uh, but I just wanted to end this one by saying thanks. And we'll see you next time. Here's to the next decade. Woo! Thank you.